Hello, welcome to our podcast. I'm Josh Way. I'm Dan Hammer. And uh, we like to watch movies that one or both of us have seen before. See how they hold up. Dan, how are you this week? Great. How are you? I'm super. This is episode number 10. We did it. <laughs> we made it. Pat ourselves on the back. They said we, we'd quit. They said we'd putter out. And here we are. Uh, what do we do now? Oh, yeah. Did you see anything? I did. I saw palms josh you did oh <laughs> yeah for your sins for all of our no, sins. no no because i i'm okay so i assume that palms has two target audiences and mm-hmm. one it's women the age of the actresses in the film and mm-hmm. the other is gays and so i am all about a movie like palms and i was there with one other gay in the theater <laughs> last night the only gays in the village the only gays in the village. And it was a ton of fun. What was the one uh, book club where they were all yeah. looking for love? Remember that one? Right. I do. It's a lot like that. So <laughs> they have this idea that older people can't work a cell phone. Right. It, it's that. And middle-aged people are just there to make your life miserable. Mm-hmm. And younger people are either very sweet and have nothing to do with their time but to help you with your life or they're cruel and scornful. And this is the universe that this exists in. And I enjoyed it. It's an hour and a half. Yeah. I was checking my watch an hour in. That's, that's pretty late for me right. in a movie. Yeah, sure. So it went pretty well. Um, Diane Keaton can do no wrong. And here is, I mean, no surprise, really. Jackie Weaver is such a gem. It would not be the same without her. She brings her Jackie Weaverness. In, I've, I've never liked her more than I like her in this movie. And Rhea Perlman is wonderful. You know, Pam Greer is in this cast and on wow. and on. It just goes to show that there is such a thing to being a proper professional with real experience. Yeah. I feel like maybe younger actresses or people who are more famous for being famous, they can work on their acting skills and they can do a, a decent job. And then you look at these consummate pros who have been around the block 90 times and you're like, wow, they're so good, even in this dumb movie. And they know it's dumb and they're all playing below their intelligence and doing a great job. Sure. So the book club thing is like a template now. Yeah, it's a it's a genre. I'll, I'll, I'll give a quick plot synopsis. So it's revealed in the opening moments that Diane Keaton has cancer and she is going to forego further treatment and she's going to move into this retirement facility. Why she's doing that is not entirely clear because she seems to hate everything about it and she wants to keep to herself. And Jackie Weaver is her neighbor who has no boundaries in a way that is kind of sweet and wants to kind of pull her out of her shell, get her to do something. Obviously something she's always wanted to do is to be a cheerleader. And so, and she never got the opportunity. And so she pulls together a ragtag crew and Celia Weston plays kind of the queen bee of the retirement community who doesn't think this is an appropriate club because it is immoral and it is degrading. Mm -hmm. And what about, the insurance liability because someone could fall or hurt themselves. Meanwhile, they have golf and tennis and swimming and all sorts of things that could have liability. But the eight cheerleaders is what she sets her sights upon. Here's one thing. Here's one critique I have is that they need some rehearsal space 
because the retirement community is kind of pushing them out. They don't want them to use the rehearsal space. So Jackie Weaver has a, an inn at the local high school. And so they're going to rehearse at the high school. But it turns out mm-hmm. that this rehearsal is actually a pep rally. So even though they just want to use it as a run through, they're going to have a teen audience. Mm. And the teens, right? Well, and the teens are cruel and point and they laugh at them and they mock them. And I think that is like no teenager who I know today. I feel like if you had an older woman group of cheerleaders come into a pep rally at a high school, I think most of them would in great nature, you know, laugh along right. with them and think this is amazing. There'd be some private older women but... doing. That. Yeah, but for the most part people would think that this is awesome. Sure. And this idea that they're going to ter- be mean girls who are going to post this yeah. and for it's going to go viral how dumb these old women are. That word are. has to be stricken from uh movie scripts <laughs> henceforth. <laughs> yeah. And Diane Keaton's like, well, can't you just take it down? <laughs> <laughs> Call the internet. I mean, she she <laughs> she deserves an Oscar for that right. line. <laughs> but all all in all, I had a really good time at. Well, would you like to uh, address and, Angelica Houston directly now, Dan? I don't know what oh, that Angelica means. Houston uh, made some comments about this movie being humiliating and stupid. And that she felt bad for the ladies who agreed to be in it. She has since backpedaled and retracted her comments and apologized. Well, what's the last thing Angelica Houston has done? Uh, I take it she auditioned for Palms and didn't get the part. Quite possibly. And so now she's embittered. But who oh, cares? I saw her in the trailer for John Wick 3, so I'm going to spend Thursday night with Angelica this week. Oh, well. So she's doing just yes. as well. Everyone knows that this is stupid. Right. That's the point. That's the fun. And when we don't have roles for women of this age, typically, at least not as a protagonist, you know, you're the mother or you're off to the side or something. And this is representing a community, not as they actually are, but as a, you know, a heightened and silly version of themselves. I think that that's a lot of fun. And and a certain segment of moviegoers, me included, will really enjoy it. Sounds like fun. Yeah, I wouldn't recommend it for straight men. Sure, okay. <laughs> it was not on my list. However, I am doing the dumb for dumb sake thing tomorrow night when I go to see The Hustle. Oh, that's going to be amazing. I've been waiting for um, for my Josh to go to that because that's yeah. like a we have to go together movie. Sure. I don't know what happened with Anne Hathaway. I used not to really care for Anne Hathaway, if I'm honest. And in recent times, she has just skyrocketed to the top of my list of must-see actors and actresses. Is it because you know she won't be in Les Mis again? (laughs) No. I mean, I I went to see her in Serenity. I love Anne Hathaway. I thought she was hilarious in Ocean's whatever number. Yeah, And now anything she does, I just see this, this wink and this smirk. And I think she's sure. so cool and wonderful. And in a dumb movie like this, I'm yeah. gonna—I want to see Anne Hathaway. Yeah, I don't think it looks near. I don't think it's going to be as good as a simple favor. But to me, it's that kind of a movie for this year of just like watching these two ladies have a whole lot of fun in a beautiful place. Yeah, it'll be a lot better than whatever that one was more recently—the romantic comedy Fever Dream. Oh yeah, isn't it romantic? Yeah, I didn't like that, but I think that this will be a lot better vehicle. 
The reviews was, are all bad, but I, I oh, I, my expectations are completely adjusted. Screw that! It's going to be so good. Did you Let's see anything? I saw Endgame again, and it's so good. I kind of was equivocating the first time after I saw it. I saw it again and just like melted away into it, and it, it's it's great. It was a lot of fun. I nice. also saw Amazing Grace last oh, week. Oh, tell me all about that. I've heard just some really great reviews from people who I know. So in, I believe it's 1971 or two, Aretha Franklin is the top, you know, black artist in the world. She's the top R&B and gospel artist. And at the height of her powers, Warner Brothers uh, lets her, tells her you can do whatever you want to do. She decides to go back to her roots and record a live gospel album at a church in Southern California. And then Warner Brothers hires young filmmaker Sidney Pollock to film. He screws it up and doesn't slate or some kind of technical issue where they can't synchronize the audio. So the film and the audio, the album comes out, it's award-winning, considered the greatest gospel album of all time. The film sits in cans and is not seen until now. Finally, I guess in 2018, 19 technology allows them to synchronize some songs with some film footage. And so now we get to see this really nice, it's just a, a 90 minute kind of compression of these two different nights when they recorded this uh, with the, with the choir and it's great. It's amazing to, to hear her sing and to see the sweat and the, and the effort. And um, it's this really animated black church in uh, somewhere in LA and there's people getting, you know, slain in the spirit and running down the aisles and then the camera moves and there's Mick Jagger sitting there with a big grin on his face. Whoa. It uh, has many, many pleasures, this movie. Yeah, I'll definitely have to hit that one up. I don't know if I'll be able to catch it in the theater or not. I, I do see it fleetingly at a house yeah. or two. That was uh, very enjoyable. Dan, did you, are we at a point where we can talk Suspiria yet? Yeah, we are. Good. I want to hear from you first. All right. Um, let's see. I have. It's been a couple weeks now since I saw it. I am not familiar with the original Suspiria, of which this is a kind of a spiritual remake. I understand it's not really a note-for-note plot remake. It's just kind of paying a tribute to that movie. That was a kind of an inexpensive Italian horror movie that was considered kind of uh, deliciously trashy. This one is, I don't know, I guess it's like a modern, big-budget, bonkers horror movie about a dance coven in, for some reason, in West Berlin in, uh, what, this is the 60s, I believe? Soon a, after the war. That's right. No one really knows why this is the time period. This is not the historical setting of the original, but I have uh, I have a weak theory as to why the time period. But, yeah, you've got Dakota Johnson, fresh off the farm, goes to join this prestigious dance troupe. She auditions and there's something special about her and there's something special about the dance troupe. And slowly we learn that they just might be a coven of witches who use the art of dance to exact revenge on people and accomplish dark purposes. And just when you think that all of its horrors and delights and bonkersness have been exposed, it goes a little deeper until we end up in an underground Satan bunker. (laughs) And I found it to be fascinating. I still don't know that I know what happened every inch of the way, but I definitely enjoyed the journey. 
I enjoyed it a lot too. And I guess I wasn't watching it too closely and it really required more of a close watch than I was giving it. I think that I really did need to read every subtitle because yeah. I think there were explanations that mm-hmm. I was missing. I had to consult a pretty serious plot analysis. Mm-hmm. And I found an analysis that made some sense to me. Some sentences I had to read two or three times to make sense of it. I don't think it's that deep, but the plot to me, to me, crucial information was simply not supplied. I think that just a little bit of, I mean, I want to ask for narration or for title cards or something, but I, I felt like a true dolt after having read it because I had no clue mm-hmm. what was going on now that I do understand what's going on. If I could fast forward through the parts that were a little slower, mm-hmm. I think I might enjoy it. But the fact is, I just enjoyed the journey so much as it was. I It mostly went over my head. I had no clue. Mm-hmm. There was a dance company, and there was this girl who was a dancer. And uh, Tilda Swinton was this instructor. And then, like you say, they're just in this labyrinth or something. Mm-hmm. And was that character of Marcos, did did that character exist before the final scene? There was a glimpse of her earlier, but only in that underground area. Perhaps when um, the other girl, um, where she's snooping around underground, and I think she actually looks in a room and sees Marcos sitting in the wheelchair with the ladies around her. Yes, I was confused about the character of Marcos. And yeah. I was confused. They talk about, about it pretty explicitly early on, but you, it feels like it's right. just this ancient lore. It, you, don't, you don't think it's something that's actually happening. I understood that there was a vote right. and that Marcos won the vote. I did understand that. And then when it came to Susie, I believe her name is, she yeah. is a, a figure cosmically that transcends this coven, which yeah. wasn't entirely clear to me. No, that's because what I needed some clarity on as well, yeah. I think that we just are not educated on the lore of the three mothers, right? which is a thing, I guess. Yeah. And if you're aware of that, you understand that she is one of the three mothers who they are kind of worshiping, the, the triad. But and does so, Tilda Swinton, which one is she? I forgot her name. Madame Blanc. Blanc. Is she not aware of that? Because it seems through the most of the movie like she's prepping Susie as a vessel and then it feels like Susie comes in and through purity of heart or something she kind of like just takes command of the entire situation yeah there was confusion there for me I wondered if she was going to be a vessel either for Marcos or for Blanc herself depending on the future of the coven but it turns out that Tilda Swinton is is also suspicious as she should be it turns out because she is this grand mother who is over all of them. And then she, you know, offers the release of death to the three girls who were being oppressed by this coven. One of them, I have to mention Chloe Grace Moritz, who by the way, is six degrees of Chloe Grace Moritz in my life lately after Greta and this, Right. And I, I rented um, over the weekend. This is something I saw, but I didn't bring it up. Uh, Diary of a Wimpy Kid oh. from 2010. And the girl who's a year older and sort of wiser and in and out. And I was just like, oh, she looks so familiar. Oh, Chloe Grace Moritz. Oh, wow. By the way, that is a wonderful children's movie. Oh, okay. I, I really liked it. 
seriously I, isaac enjoyed it as well and uh my son isaac and mm-hmm. you know because some kids movies are just kids movies sure. and then there are ones that are witty and you'd go you'd return to and to me that would be yep. one of them okay i believe my gloria has read the book i don't know if she's seen the movie yet how old how old is she now she's uh she's gonna be eight in a few months so yeah yeah oh she's old enough for that she'd enjoy that movie all right noted as far as the historical setting Again, maybe you read something that brings that into focus. For me, it just seemed like me, the best I could do just from watching the movie was I thought it was I felt it was muddled. The best I could do was it's a time of a lot of upheaval and violence and evil that's very identifiable and on TV. But meanwhile, there's this this extreme evil that's going on in a place where no one would even think to look. Now, I don't know if that's just a contrast or if there's some deeper he's trying to say something. It was just a choice. Let's let's take Suspiria and put it in West Berlin. Yeah, I mean, you can't say you can't draw no significance from that choice, especially considering that the doctor lost his wife in mm-hmm. a concentration camp. Yeah, and he's tricked into the coven by a vision of her. It's it's a, in a it's an imposter. And when you're talking about the deep, terrible evil that's taking place there, what exactly that means? The film did not make clear. Yeah, though there was great evil in that place. But and at the end, is Susie promising as the new leader to make things right? Is it a you know when she visits him and apologizes for everything? It's very unclear what exactly has happened and what trajectory there is for her character. I don't know. She's the mother of size, which I understand as meaning that essence of femininity that exhales either in grief or frustration or in solidarity and you can understand that and then some when you're looking at the holocaust that Mm -hmm. that one who empathizes that one who comes alongside and says yes it hurts i know that that's who she's supposed to be Mm -hmm. she's the one who offers the the grace of death to the people who have been oppressed by So is this movie set in Germany because it's about dealing with the aftermath of great evil and deciding, you know, as a nation, who are we going to be moving forward? It could be. And then there's that, um, that final dance called Volk. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, I looked that up and that's, uh, I guess a German word that has to do with like people or race. We don't really have a, an English equivalent for it. And that would, to me, have to do with that theme. Yeah. That this is the dance that they did before, and now they're bringing it back and trying to do it again. And this mm-hmm. is going to be the occasion of them trying to bring forth their evil publicly. And we have this man who's in the audience, um, the doctor. And uh, I was reading an analysis that does this mean that in order for evil to be real, a man needs to witness it? And that's mm-hmm. why he's brought down to the labyrinth, to the coven, because mm-hmm. you need right. a man's eye for something to be real. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. It was just oh. what this person was saying. I have a filmmaking but, question about that. but Well, I'd like to hear it. Uh, just simply the practicality of Tilda Swinton playing this man when he's naked laying on the floor. Is there some just a digital head on another guy's body or do they do they bother with a prosthetic body for her? Cause it looked like an old man body. I would imagine that they went the whole nine yards just when I imagined the kind of actress that she is. And she's a nine yards kind of actress. Impressive. I hope they let her keep the suit. (laughs) 
she wears it to sleep. I realized that um, Dakota Johnson was in a bigger splash with her. Oh. Because, of course, I remember Tilda Swinton from that, but I didn't remember who the younger actress was, right. and it is Dakota Johnson. That's another um, Guadagnino movie, right? Yes. And that movie is high on my list of impactful films. Mm. And it holds the distinction of being the biggest laugh I've ever had in the theater. Oh, wow. And I can still see myself going down the escalator, crying with laughter after the movie. Wow. And whenever I think of that scene or talk it through, I am filled with with joy and I can't help but laugh. <laughs> I, I love that movie for that reason. Wow. All right. I, I've been it? meaning to catch up on his his previous films. Oh, the the I won't spoil it for you, but the the scene at the end where uh, Tilda Swinton confronts Dakota Johnson is mm-hmm. one of my favorite in film history. All right, okay, Dan, let's take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about Dark City. Welcome back, Dan and Josh. This week's movie is Dark City. Did you watch it, Dan? (laughs) Since I have a lot of commitment, I did. And I didn't just watch the regular movie. I watched, at your request, the director's cut. Oh, my goodness. Such dedication. Would you explain to us the significance of the director's cut? I will. I'm going to talk about the film, and I will also cover that. This is a 1998 noir sci-fi genre mix-up film directed by Alex Proyas and starring Rufus Sewell, Jennifer Connelly, Kiefer Sutherland, and William Hurt. And uh, this is a movie about a man who wakes up, doesn't know who he is, doesn't know what's happening. He appears to have committed a heinous crime. He's on the run and he has to piece together not just his identity, but eventually uh, his reality in a mind-bending, futuristic, noir-scape thing. And uh, this film was released um, theatrically and on DVD in its original version, and then sometime in the mid-2000s, I think, 2002, 2005, somewhere in there, was re-released with a director's cut. That is 12 minutes longer. It has uh, some aspects of the plot clarified, some shots added, some things removed. Uh, It's not wildly different, but it's different enough. And uh, I think the consensus is that most of the people who are into this movie prefer the director's cut. Okay. So I would like to talk about this movie on two different tracks. First, just as a movie and as an original genre movie at that and how it holds up 21 years later. And then also separate from that, in regard to Roger Ebert's championing of this movie and what some of the implications of that are. Bring it. All right. So this movie does get a lot of credit for originality, in my opinion. I don't think it's based on anything. As far as, to my knowledge, it's an original screenplay, although the director, Alex Proyas, wrote the original version, and apparently the script is changed so much that it's almost unrecognizable by the time that it's shot. But still, it is not based on an existing property like so many things are. So I want to give it that, that credit as a uh, an original story. It's derivative, but it is original. 
And the movie to me is interesting for the way that it incorporates noir and sci-fi, like almost from the start. So this is a kind of movie where you start in the middle of a mystery and then things unfold. But rather than giving you a noir story that is eventually through some kind of a twist revealed to be science fiction, the science fiction elements are present almost from the beginning. So like within the first 15 minutes of this movie, a bad guy's head is smashed open and some kind of alien ghost escapes. And you're like, oh, okay, that's that's the kind of movie we're watching. It kind of has the look and feel that could be described as um, like Brazil meets Barton Fink. But the story actually reminds me of two other movies contemporary to this one. One being Truman Show and the other one being The Matrix. Because those are both stories about confused protagonists discovering that their reality is being un, is being engineered by unseen powers but the similarities to the matrix are actually kind of stark have you seen the matrix dan i have and i like the matrix yeah did i don't know if you had this thought at all but to me i i was thinking while i was watching it here's a protagonist who not only discovers that his reality's been constructed by alien beings but he eventually learns that he can match their powers and fight them and, and ultimately remake the world according to his own will, which I was like, wow, that's the matrix, which is the same year, I think, or maybe a year later. Yeah. This was clearly a, a precursor to the matrix. I mean, I would assume that of course the matrix was in the works by the time this is being released. And there's something yeah. about that time in history and in people's imagination in film that all of this stuff kind of came together. I didn't think of the Truman show, um, which by the way, was probably my favorite movie at the time. I absolutely mm -hmm. adored the Truman show. Um, but I didn't think of it though. I can see what you're saying. Clearly this was matrixy. And when I think of Roger Ebert finding it to be so original, mm -hmm. he's finding it to be so original because it hit right when it did, because if mm -hmm. a movie like that hit today, nothing original about it right because right. so much has looked like that since but at yeah. the time it's very true nothing had looked quite like that and i wonder what is it about that late um 90s era the end of the clinton years where we're feeling a paranoia and a draw toward this dark vision we've seen it before say in batman of the dark, terrible city. That's mm -hmm. not new. But this idea that uh, reality isn't what it seems, that you're being controlled, where did that come from? At that pre-9-11, pre-Bush point in history, it's like we sort of saw what was going to happen 15 years before it happened. Yeah. I have a cynical answer to that, which is just that effects were reaching this level where you could do anything you could imagine from a visual standpoint. And so those ideas, which had been around in kind of pulp sci-fi literature for a long time, kind of were easy to grab. And then dark things, cool things like steampunk and noir and whatever were just available to make cool visuals. I see what but, you're saying, but I feel like there has to be something underlying culturally that leads people in that direction artistically because you can do that and yeah it is cool yeah. Yeah. but there but there's some motivation under the surface because this wasn't a one-off this was part of the culture in the late 
right. 90s, early 2000s. Is it, a, is it a backlash to the lazy kind of 90s progressive, uh, you know, pie in the sky kind of attitude? It could be. It's hard to think what it was like at the end of the Clinton years after, you know, the Ken Starr investigation. I mean, is it? have to do a little bit with that of yeah someone controlling behind the scenes and feeling powerless over something that really wasn't a big deal but it turned into a huge deal i don't mm, know yeah well i had never seen this movie before i'd never heard of this movie before mm-hmm. and so i was glad to get to watch it i like movies like this um like i say i like the matrix like the truman show wasn't thinking of it but i can see it I like the fantasy element of it. I think that it was really creative. There's a satisfaction to the idea that so early in the film, he can manipulate reality so as to evade the villains. Because I think it can be really frustrating if you're constantly obstructed by the villains. And even though he doesn't understand, he can get around them. Yeah. So I, I enjoyed that. I don't know if I followed every element of the plot, but I don't think that's important. Because they created a world that was interesting for him to be in, and you're just sort of following him on his journey. And in the end, it doesn't seem like there's a center. To me, There's this is part of the collapse of modernism. Of course, the collapse of modernism had been going on for decades, and postmodernism is certainly a thing by the late 90s. But this idea that there isn't a center, and we kind of wander around in a dreamlike state hoping for the best, Mm-hmm. I felt that a lot in this movie. And yeah. ultimately there is hope that he's kind of able to flood this world somehow to create this place that he f- just felt deep in his soul. He's supposed to be going to whether or not it was actually ever a place. We're not sure. Yeah. But he's able to create his own dreamscape, his own utopia and the girl of his dreams, even though she isn't actually the girl of his dreams is able to show up with him there and that's kind of the best we can hope for. Mm-hmm. I feel like that resonates with with the current cultural mm-hmm. aesthetic and uh, emotion. Yeah. So I was tracking with this movie, uh, which I had not seen in, in over a, a decade, and, and just seeing how it did as an inhabitant of its multiple genres, at least um, noir and sci-fi. And I find the noir stuff in this movie to be a little bit derivative and a little bit flat i do like how it opens i like the mystery but i also like that it's not it solves its mysteries and deepens them at the same time as it goes it's not one mystery where you're kind of relitigating the same facts over and over again and i appreciate that but just as far as the trappings of the dark city literally the dark city as far as his character and is he a criminal, a lot of that stuff looked cool. And I liked the auto mat and some of the kind of, you know, the stuff that was a little bit out of time. I thought Jennifer Connelly's character was a little bit uh, thin in terms of the writing. I don't know that singing was the best thing to have her do. Those felt kind of like perfunctory noir things. And that, and the fact that his his crime that he's accused of is killing these prostitutes and dead women kind of become like props in this story. So I felt like that aspect of it, apart from the sci-fi stuff, which I think comes in and makes it a lot more interesting and maybe even offers some explanation, but I don't want to let it off the hook that easily because, uh, and in this way, it actually reminded me of, I thought of Serenity again, because why not think of Serenity every day that you can? And wow. how if the if the criticisms you have of the movie could be explained away because in that case a thirteen year old boy or whatever 
is creating it as a video game. You know, I guess you could explain away the kind of derivative, sometimes cheesy use of noir tropes in this movie as, well, that's just the best that the strangers can do. But I don't, I think it, that's, that's like the writers letting themselves off the hook by blaming someone else. And I don't, again, I don't have a big problem with this movie. I really like this movie. I'm just saying, I think the sci-fi elements do hold up better than the noir elements. That's true. And it's hard to analyze it fairly on this side of history because noir has gone in such a different direction Mm -hmm. since 2000. Uh, Even thinking how this was pre-Mulholland Drive. Yeah. And how that, there's a movie with no center and yet somehow it just kept going around and around. That this is even before anyone had seen anything like that. Before anyone had seen The Matrix, before Dark Knight, before any more of that stuff where we're just in a dark, terrible hellscape city living our meaningless lives. Yeah. I wonder how I would have approached this if I were me today back in 19, what was it, 98. Me then, I probably wouldn't have appreciated it. Mm-hmm. Which I, and I did appreciate it today. I was glad to have seen it and that it's on my radar. Yeah. And I guess I'm having a bit of a, of a different trajectory where I was fascinated with movies like this in Brazil back in the day. I wonder if this doesn't hold up better for me than Brazil does, which seems uh, sacrilege, but um, I think I enjoyed revisiting this one more. But I also used to have Brazil memorized and I never was that deeply into this movie. So it really was like a completely uh, refreshed experience watching it. Um, yeah, it's a better it's a better film to me than Brazil. I enjoyed yeah. it a lot more. I actually have some stuff about Mulholland Drive in my notes here simply because I was thinking how there's different kinds of weird movies. And you're right that these these both share the fact that they don't really have a center. Uh, But I would say Mulholland is the kind of movie we kind of weird movie that does not desire to or need to or plan to deliver any explanations. And it's it's purely a journey, whereas this movie is a journey, but it does have explanations. And what happens then is I think this needs it because the weirdness of this movie is not as kind of uniquely genius and delicious as the stuff in Mulholland. It's more like, oh, well, that's weird. That's cool. That's interesting. But you kind of have to wait and figure out what's going on. The question then becomes, how do the answers perform? What are the answers? I do appreciate in this movie that we get information and answers doled out as we go. And there's not a shocking twist there's kind of a buildup and you kind of are taken on this journey. And then when he kind of realizes again, much like the matrix, when you, when you have this kind of culmination of his powers, uh, it's very satisfying, but beyond just, they are aliens experimenting on humans to try to understand humanity, which is a very old trope from, you know, again, from science fiction literature, a way for us to examine ourselves through stories about aliens, trying to figure out what makes us tick. I don't know that other than, individualism i don't know really what to come away from this movie with still very much having enjoyed the journey though i agree i don't have any real thoughts on what happens in the movie that's not the point the journey is the whole thing Mm -hmm. and i enjoyed it i wondered what happened to rufus sewell he's continued to work now that i've clicked on his wikipedia page um he was in mrs Maisel. oh (laughs) that's the main thing that that i saw though i don't think anything of prominence I think it's interesting that you bring up uh, Jennifer Connelly, first off, who was way less famous then. Yeah. And her being a singer, that was indeed completely unnecessary. Mm -hmm. And I think that they might have done something more interesting with that. She was wearing a green dress. And this is random. But um, 
on RuPaul's Drag Race, Michelle Visage, <laughs> one of the judges, hates green, hates any green dress. Wow. It's not appropriate for performance. <laughs> and I don't, I don't know why, but I sort of agree. And whenever I see someone just like <laughs> revealed in a green dress, I'm like, oh, <laughs> immediately. And she, and Jennifer Connelly was wearing a green dress for some reason in the opening sequence. And I really think it was a mistake on the part of the filmmakers. <laughs> and that's just me bringing a, a queer voice to the sure. show. Well, I appreciate that very much. I guess, yeah, a couple more words about the uh, performances before I want to get into the uh, the kind of meta stuff and the Roger Ebert stuff. I have stuff too. Okay. William Hurt, good in the part. He's always, he's always good to see him. I didn't, uh, I wrote down a couple of lines. I didn't like his dialogue. I thought that was, wh- what are the lines? There were some bad lines. Uh, you know, I like to write down the bad lines and the great lines. Oh, here it is. Uh, someone woke up on the wrong side of the bed. It's a corpse of a woman covered in blood. And he says she woke up on the wrong side of the bed. And then things like round and round she goes. And then he like actually finishes it. Like I just, to me, some of the dialogue <laughs> there was cringeworthy. Where he stops, nobody yeah. knows. Uh, Kiefer Sutherland, Sutherland, interesting turn. Uh, having fun, clearly have, having a great time. Character. I have something to admit. When he first came on, I thought to myself, Jason Sudeikis would have been too young oh, yeah. because I wow. like that's who I saw. Yeah. I thought I thought um, he was great. Yeah, I, I I mean, obviously, when I realized who it was, of course, that's who it is. Right. But I thought that is so not his usual sort of role mm-hmm. or or presentation or process. Yeah. I thought he took some risks. Yeah. And I, I thought that this was a, a good role for yeah. him. Nice to see Richard O'Brien um, in a non-riffraff role. I don't know oh, what that uh, means. Oh, Rocky Horror Picture Show. Creator oh, of Rocky right. Horror Picture Show, Richard O'Brien. I'm not that kind of queer. I believe. Okay. He, anyway, he was Mr. Book or Mr. Hand. And then the, the main, Ian Richardson, I believe is his name, the, the old British actor who was the main stranger. I like the fact that there was a kid. That was kind of creepy. That one I liked that too. Child. That was a good choice. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that's mostly my observations about the movie. Do you have anything else, Dan? Um, I don't think so. It delivered on what it promised. There was a dark city and people did stuff in it. That's right. And then in the end, I really liked the final moments where it was a little less dark and there was some hope. Yeah. And I really didn't understand. Are they still out in space? I, I guess so. Yeah, I don't but, get that. I wonder how if the hope that's kind of my other my thing about the ending too is are they just now trusting this one guy to kind of craft a new reality that's always good for everybody? I mean, it's as, at least as good as what we have going on now in our society. Well, Dan, uh Roger Ebert famously loved this movie. He gave it four stars. It doesn't surprise me that he would love a movie like this. Yeah. He narrated it shot by shot at one of those Ebert Fest things where he shows a movie shot by shot. He provides a commentary on the DVD and Blu-ray. At the end of his commentary, he predicts that Alex Proyas would become an auteur director at the level of Stanley Kubrick and then proceeded over time to give very mixed reviews to his movies two and three star reviews to most of his movies. Although he did love knowing which was the last of his films that, that Ebert himself reviewed. He gave that four star. I'm just thinking about what it might've done to Proyas who was not, he's not a kid. I don't, this is not his first movie. He directed the crow before this, which I think Ebert also loved. I'm just wondering what it does to someone early in their career to have this kind of a boost from someone like Ebert and whether that was a blessing or a curse. You know, I really don't know. It was early in his career. 
I, I mean, Ebert would champion things that weren't getting the attention that he felt they deserved because he, Ebert, of course, loved movies and something that made his imagination leap and his spirit soar. That doesn't come around every day. And when I, especially considering that this is pre-Matrix, yeah. you know, pre, um, not pre-CGI, but the age where there was CGI for everything, Mm-hmm. This really was a tr- this truly was an achievement, and so I understand why a a critic of his caliber would latch onto it. Yep. I, I I don't know what it what it might have done or not done for his career, changed the trajectory. Yeah, and I'd forgotten about that comment about Kubrick, and I was like, oh, if I was a, a young filmmaker, of course that's flattering, but I don't know that I'd want somebody to say that because that boy, that just would spin your head around. That's a little too much. Yeah. Also, I'm thinking just about this versus Matrix, and uh, I love The Matrix. I think The Matrix is great. I don't love the, its sequels so much, but I'm I love the the Wachowskis. I like uh, they take big swings. I like a lot of their movies. This really is so much at its heart doing a very similar thing. I think it's simply because they got their fingers on the pulse of a kind of future cyber punk kind of a thing that was fresh and took people forward whereas this movie looks back to noir for its coolness and to outer space for its sci-fi magic i just i think um that's the difference between this not being a cultural phenomenon and the matrix succeeding as one i think that's totally true this movie doesn't really have a cool factor not that it's not cool but when i compare it to the matrix the matrix was very of the moment in every way. What was, what was what's the difference in soundtrack would you say? I feel like that's a big thing to do with it. Yeah, I felt like this was a couple of cheesy pre-existing kind of old school noir songs and then a a nice orchestral score whereas The Matrix had a very electronic and interesting and right like throughout score. So yeah, on all on all fronts I think The Matrix was trailblazing in a way that this movie's not just nice that this movie would at least get brought up and mentioned, you know, in the same breath as Matrix as having a similar kind of a uh, ambition story-wise. It sure does. Sure. Do. And it, I mean, hey, it beat it by a year. Sure. I assume Ebert liked The Matrix, but he, I guess he didn't need to champion The Matrix. Let's check it out. Sure. I'm doing it with one finger because I'm holding a mic. I'm I'm sure he gave it four three. stars. No, three. I know. Uh, Too bad because the setup is intriguing. The Matrix recycles the premise of Dark City. Ooh, look at that. Yeah. He gave three and a half to Matrix Reloaded, which I just have got to question. The Matrix sequels, in my opinion, are major disappointments. I remember, I know I saw at least one of them, the first one, and I think I liked it okay. But to me, as time has gone by, the original just is The Matrix. Yeah. Right. And it's the best one. I suppose if I'm going to make another comparison and give a point to the Matrix trilogy, I do like that at the end of the Matrix saga, I, if I'm remembering it correctly, it's been a long time, there is some kind of actual resolution where the machines are gone and the sun comes out and people are living again on an actual earth and they have a chance to actually recover an authentic humanity, which is not exactly what's offered at the end of, of Dark City. No, it's a little more cryptic. Well, Dan, thanks for watching this movie if not with me. Thanks for suggesting it. In regard to me. <laughs> I thought of you as I watched it. Good. You're like, yep, makes sense. I felt like I was there with you. Good, yeah. I'm not going to ask you about your choice because we don't do that anymore. I think I'm going to do I think I'm going to do Michael Clayton. Oh, okay, excellent. 
It's a little, it, I mean, I don't know if that's too recent, but oh, it no. is more than 10 years. That's on my uh, short list. So we have a uh, convergence here. I love it. Yeah. Super. Uh, have you learned anything after 10 episodes, Dan Hammer? <laughs> <laughs> See, that's the thing we shouldn't ask each other. <laughs> right. Yeah. All right. This has been our podcast. Jonah. Uh, Jonah. Got to shout out Jonah. Rapino. Rapino. That theme music that you're enjoying right now. Follow us on Letterboxd or Twitter. Follow the pod at Holds Up Pod on Twitter. Thank you for listening. We're going to see you again in a week when we're going to be 11 episodes wiser. Double digits, baby. Hey, have a great week. I can't pull, uh, I can't pull off saying baby. <laughs> you did it. No. Right, part of the permanent record. I didn't record. do it right. I didn't do it right. All right. Number 10. Whew. 10th episode anniversary. What should we do to celebrate? Uh, do the best podcast we've ever done. No, not that. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> some kind of stupid stunt where we <laughs> play clips from the previous nine episodes. <laughs> Let's do a countdown. Top 10 episodes. <laughs> <laughs>